Being a pastor is a tough job. In America, 250 pastors leave the ministry each month. In 2015, LifeWay Research surveyed 1,500 pastors about their ministries. Here were the results. 84% of pastors say they're on call 24 hours a day. 80% expect conflict in their church. 54% find being a pastor frequently overwhelming. 53% are concerned about their family's finances. 55% say it's easy to get discouraged. 48% often feel the demands of ministry are more than they can handle. 21% say their church has unrealistic expectations of them. Only 44% of pastors are serving today in the same church they were in 10 years ago. Scott McConnell, a spokesman for Lifeway, sums up the findings. It's a brutal job. Pastors have a challenging work environment. Churches ought to be concerned. But here's what we learn from Paul's letters to the Corinthians. Pastoring has always been a tough job. If Paul had been part of this LifeWay survey, his answers would have added to the troubling results. Yet rather than moan, rather than join the ranks of the pastors who quit, Paul understood the rigors of Christian ministry. He accepted the challenges. By the way, as most pastors do, this survey revealed one more interesting tidbit. Despite the strain, the demands, the obstacles, 98% of pastors still consider their calling an honor and a privilege. And this is how Paul speaks of Christian ministry as he begins chapter 4. Therefore, Since we have this ministry, as we have received mercy, we do not lose heart. Yes, ministry's tough, but we take heart, not lose heart. Imagine being a pastor today in Syria or in Iraq. Rather than worry about a late night phone call from a distraught church member, your concern is ISIS thugs. You don't want to go out on the street and get captured and be burned, you know, for your faith. You don't want to have your tongue cut out for speaking the gospel. Our ministry is not so tough that our lives are threatened, at least not yet. Yet Paul faced all these dangers. How in the world did he not lose heart? Well, two truths encourage Paul's ministry. First, was the glory of the message he had received. In these preceding verses, Paul compared the glory of the new covenant with the glory of the law. And there was no comparison. The law was written on stone, whereas the new covenant was written by the Holy Spirit etched in human hearts. The law brought condemnation. Grace brought salvation. The law was passing away. God's new covenant abides forever. The letter of the law kills our incentive, whereas the power of the Holy Spirit sets us free to know God, to behold His glory, and to be transformed into His image even from glory to glory. Paul had been entrusted with this new covenant, this incredible message, and it encouraged him. He was always conscious of the fact that on the tip of his lips, 
was the truth every human needed to know to be free. This kept him encouraged. For Paul, it was the majesty of the gospel that impacted his ministry of the gospel. And if this ministry wasn't enough to excite him and to enthuse him, Paul had also received mercy. He says in verse 1, We have this ministry as we have received mercy. You know, at one time, Paul had opposed this glorious message. It's ironic. It was while Paul's eyes were open that his mind was blinded. It took a bright light from heaven that blinded his eyes for God to finally open his mind. Paul realized that he was the chief of sinners. Yet God loved him and chose him and even used him. Paul never got over the utter mercy of it all, the mercy he had received. It caused him to take heart even in the face of a difficult ministry. Paul writes of the scruples that he applied to his ministry in verse 2. He says, But we have renounced the hidden things of shame, not walking in craftiness. When I was in college, I lived in the dorm, and we played a lot of cards. Probably should have been studying, but we played a lot of cards. And when you play cards, you like to see everybody's hands up on the table. You know what I mean? You like to see everybody's hands. You like to make sure that there's nothing going on under the table. No passing cards. No signaling partners. You want to make sure that nothing underhanded is going on. And this is how Paul played his cards in ministry. When he ministered, he wanted everything to be above board. He was willing to lay all his cards out on the table. He had no hidden agendas, no shameful motivations, nor did he use any crafty manipulations. He was honest. He conducted his ministry with integrity. Early in our married life, when the kids were little, I bought my wife Kathy a minivan. And this was truly a labor of love, for buying cars is definitely not a task that I enjoy. You just expect to get pressured and lied to and manipulated and get strong-armed. And in the end, you probably are going to get suckered. And I don't like any of the above. Well, after visiting several traditional dealerships, we went to a discounted car lot where they claimed that they didn't dicker. I didn't believe them until I started to dicker. And when I threatened to walk off, I'll never forget the guy standing by the car and he said, that's okay, this is a good car at a good price, and if you don't buy it, somebody else will. I couldn't believe that he really wouldn't dicker. I had to humble myself, slouch back over, and buy Kathy the car that she kept for about 15 years. It was a really good car. But this was Paul's approach to ministry. He wasn't like some used car salesman slapping the hood of the car, slapping the hood of the latest gospel, making deceitful claims, making grandiose boasts. Rather than lie, Paul had confidence in his car. You know, sometimes you hear preachers hype the gospel, really spread on the cheese. Come to Jesus. And he'll take away all your problems. 
You'll never be sick again. Riches are at your doorstep. Why be lonely ever? Say so long to heartbreaks and headaches. My, you'll get a supernatural back scratch every night. You'd think Jesus was some magic elixir. and He was being hawked by a con man trying to sell you a scam. I got news for you. Come to Jesus and you'll add to your life a few problems you didn't even know existed. The Bible promises us all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Jesus told his disciples, in the world you will have tribulations. How's that for a couple of those little biblical promises you could tape to your refrigerator? Of course, the verse in John 16 that begins, in this world you will have tribulation, it ends, but be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. The Lord doesn't promise to shelter us from hardships and persecution, but he does promise to be with us through them. Come to Jesus, and you'll know God's peace. You'll have his love in your heart. You'll know his pardon and his power, and it's all free. Jesus paid the price. All he asks us to do is believe. That I can guarantee. I could just as well say, This is a good salvation at a good price. And if you don't buy it, somebody else will. (laughs) But Jesus may or may not alter your circumstances or make you rich or heal your illness. On the inside, you'll be brand new. But life may get more bumpy, not less. That's just giving it to you straight without any hype. That's what Paul did. A godly pastor understands he's not on commission. He'll be rewarded whether anybody buys what he's selling or not, as long as he's faithful to make the offer. This is why you don't preach the gospel like you pitch used cars. You don't have to stretch or twist the appeal. This is why at Calvary Chapel, we don't sing just as I am a hundred times and beg people to come forward. If you have to bully people into getting saved, they're probably not really getting saved. The gospel is such a good deal It will sell itself if you present it plainly and clearly. Well, Paul continues to describe his ministry in verse 2. He adds, nor handling the word of God deceitfully. See, a preacher or a pastor isn't like a painter. Recently, we had the ease of our house painted. Before the painter started, I sat there scratching my head. I wonder how in the world they were going to finish the job with the little bit of paint that they bought. Well, that's when I saw their secret. They started cutting that paint with water. They diluted it down. Suddenly, that one gallon of paint became three gallons of watered-down paint. Slushy paint is easier to spread, and it goes a lot farther than thick, gooey paint. But it doesn't last as long, nor does it look as good over time. And the same is true with the Word of God. Paul never watered down the Scripture. He didn't thin the message just to make it spread easier or cover further. You know, a pastor who dilutes the truth to make it easier for folks to swallow can attract a crowd, but he's doing people a disservice. He's creating a false sense of security. That's dangerous. It can stunt a person's spiritual growth. In fact, it can even send a person to hell. On the night before Jesus was crucified, he said to his men, 
If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. That expression, keep my word, has taken on new meaning for me since I've had grandkids. On occasion, my son or daughter will say to Kathy and I, can you guys keep the kids? But you know, keeping grandkids, it's a very different kind of child experience than it is raising your own. A parent feels the pressure to fashion and shape their kids, whereas a grandparent loves them as is. Let the parents rein them in. I get to turn them loose. When my grandkids are with me, we run and we play and we eat angel food cake, stuff God created kids to do. Where the spirit of grandpa is, there is liberty. <laughs> hey, I love my grandkids like they're my own, but they're not. And at the end of the day, I have to give those kids back to their parents. They were sired by someone else to whom I am now accountable. A grandparent's job is to assist the parents, not insist on their own agenda. And I believe keeping the word is like good grandparenting. I keep God's word like I keep my grandkids. Oh, I cherish the time I spend in God's word. I love the word. I'll protect it from evil. And I turn it loose on Sundays to do exactly what God birthed it to do. Heal, convict, save, cleanse, change, transform, encourage. I love God's word as is. I don't restrict what his word allows, and I don't allow what his word restricts. I'm not adding to or taking away. It's his word, not mine. My only agenda is to keep it faithfully. I've been entrusted with God's word. And when I'm done preaching it, I need to return it to God just as he gave it to me. Well, Paul kept the word, and he handled it faithfully. And then he says... But by manifestation of the truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. You see, Paul was all about truth. The whole truth and nothing but the truth. When he preached, his goal was to reveal the truth, to put it on display. The truth was his only concern. Not your feelings. Not your traditions. Not your personal sensitivities. Not your sense of political correctness. Not even the odds of you returning on another Sunday. Oh, faithful preachers care about those things, but not enough to tweak God's truth. I love the words of C.H. Spurgeon, the Prince of Preachers. He said, many say that we ought to keep abreast of the times, whatever that may mean. And that there is a certain spirit of the age to which we should be subject. This to me is treason against sovereign truth. I know of only one spirit to whom I desire to be subject. And that is the spirit of all the ages who never changes. Let the times and the spirits go where they like. We shall keep to the Holy Spirit and to His eternal teachings. Whatever novelty comes up. Keep to the word of Jesus whatever discovery may be made by the wise men of the age. Let Christ be wisdom to you. Here is your anchorage. The book is our ultimatum. 
And Paul would agree. As he told the Corinthians, he handled the Word of God, not deceitfully, but faithfully. God's Word is so wise, so powerful, so engaging. When taught plainly and clearly, it surely sells itself. So the question arises, why then do people resist and reject God's Word? And in verse 3, Paul explains, But even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, whose minds the God of this age has blinded, who do not believe, lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them. You see, the gospel is such a good idea. The ultimate reason it's ever rejected is that folks have been spiritually blinded. Chalk it up to the God of this age. And this is a very provocative title for Satan. The age, the culture, the world around us has a God. But it's not our God. Realize it or not, the world bows to Satan. People live and they wonder why. They worship and they never look to whom. They'd like to have no God at all. But the God of this age has them in his spell. They're twisted around his little finger. And Satan's greatest accomplishment is that very few people know it's him. Satan, sadly, Satan blinds men to the truth of their need and the gospel. In fact, mention Jesus to some people, and it doesn't matter how nice you approach them. Their callous attitude reveals that they're a victim of spiritual deception. It's like the waitress. She was in a really foul mood. Her customer was trying to be polite. She handed him his coffee, and and he just said nonchalantly, he said, well, looks like rain today. She snapped back at him. I can't help what it looks like. We sell it as coffee, so just drink it and shut up. The point is, despite how nice you are to some folks, there's still a resistance. There's a veil over their eyes, and it's caused by Satan. That's why, before you preach, you need to pray. It's been said, there's a lot you can do after you've prayed, but there's nothing you can do effectively until you have prayed. Prayer is the heavy artillery. Through prayer, we can open the eyes that Satan has blinded. I hope you invite some of your friends to the upcoming Harvest Crusade. But I also hope that you pray for them beforehand. Paul says that Satan blinds those who do not believe. You see, it's unbelief that gives Satan his foothold. The opportunity to weave his deception. Yet when a person does believe, it opens the blinds just enough to let in the light. The light of the glory of Christ shines into them. Never give up on your friend. If you came to faith, there's hope for them. It takes just a little bit of faith to crack open the window and let the light of Jesus come streaming in. Verse 5 is so important. He says, For we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord, and ourselves your bondservants for Jesus' sake. Christian ministry should avoid any self-promotion or self-advertisement. Terminologies such as promotional tours 
and image consultants and fan clubs have no place in the Christian vocabulary. We are bond servants for Jesus' sake. Can you imagine a slave with a fan club? For some pastors, it's all about me. Their bio is a brag. They pad their stats to promote themselves. You know, it was once said of Teddy Roosevelt, who happened to be a very self-absorbed guy, by the way. Someone once said of him, he wanted to be the corpse at every funeral and the bride at every wedding. That's wanting the attention. But I know a lot of ministers that are that way. Hey, you cannot promote yourself and magnify Jesus simultaneously. A spotlight only shines on one person at a time. And if it's on you, that means that Jesus is in the dark. Paul says, we do not preach ourselves. That means when Paul used an illustration, he didn't always make himself out to be the hero. He didn't always have to tell people where he'd been and what he'd done and who he'd seen. To preach yourself is to toot your own horn. Whereas the man who preaches Christ Jesus the Lord bows even when he takes a stand. He hides even when he steps up. He listens even when he speaks. There is a humility about him. No curtain calls for him. He boldly takes the stage, but he doesn't need to. You know, when the power of the Holy Spirit came upon Samson, he was able to work mighty miracles for God. But what we're told in Judges chapter 14, verse 6, impresses me most. Now to his surprise, a young lion came roaring against him, and the Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon him. And he tore the lion apart as one would have torn apart a young goat, though he had nothing in his hand. But he did not tell his father or his mother what he had done. Did you hear that? He ripped apart a lion. The Holy Spirit came upon him. And he ripped apart a lion with his bare hands. But he didn't tell anybody about it. Are you kidding me? Most pastors would have taken a selfie, you know, holding up the lion, you know. (laughs) Then tweeted it out to all their followers. The next fundraising email would have highlighted the pick. No, the greatest miracle wasn't that Samson killed a lion with his bare hands, but that he did so without bragging about it. Paul continues. He says, For it is the God who commanded light to shine out of darkness, who has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. At the time of creation, we're told that darkness was upon the face of the deep. But God ended the darkness with what? With His Word. He said, let there be light. And there was light. This is what ends the darkness in our hearts. Not me talking about me, but God's Word. It's the knowledge of the glory of Jesus that drives out the darkness. And then verse 7. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels, that the excellence of the power may be of God and not of us. Now here's a strange idiom. Who puts treasure in earthen vessels, that is, clay pots? Who does that? I mean, that's like serving steak and lobster on a paper plate. You expect to find jewels and gold in a safe or in a treasure chest, not in a brown paper sack. But this is how God wraps up his treasure. 
God has taken the most valuable treasure on earth, the gospel and riches of Christ, and he places it in clay pots. In the ancient world, every, everyday household items were basically made out of pottery. Your everyday utensils were clay pottery. These were your daily dishes. These were your Tupperware. This was the plastic cups you keep in your cabinet. These were the disposable containers. You didn't mind if they got lost or if they got broken. In contrast to the glass vases and the fine china, those were the family heirlooms. And you would expect God to use the expensive containers to hold the more valuable contents. But that's not what He does. In fact, He does just the opposite. He wants the attention on the treasure, not the packaging. That's why God puts His eternal riches in styrofoam cups. Or as Paul would put it, clay jars. And that's what we are. We're those clay jars. We're made of clay. Our bodies are dust to dust. We're made of clay. We're coarse and uncouth and rough-edged pottery. At Calvary Chapel Stone Mountain, we're all just a bunch of crackpots. <laughs> and yet God chooses the likes of us to hold His treasure. Imagine. God places the Spirit's living water in ball jars. But why does He do this? Well, Paul explains that the excellence of the power may be of God and not of us. God uses clay pots to hold his treasure in order to hammer home that the power and the beauty and the wisdom is in the message itself, not in the messenger. The taste should come from the contents, not the container. A bottle or a cup should prove tasteless. Actually, I have a cup in my office that's devoted to coffee. It's dedicated to coffee. On occasion, though, I'll pour Coca-Cola in that cup. And you know what I end up with? I end up with coffee-flavored Coca-Cola. That's right. For the contents is contaminated by the container. My drink gets tainted. And this is not what God wants from His vessels. He doesn't want the minister to contaminate the message with our own prejudices or our pride or our opinions or our personal biases. He wants the message to flow from our lives as purely as possible so that when the listener tastes, it's the sweetness of the gospel, not the flavor of the minister. This is why Christian ministry should always be conducted in humility and in simplicity. No glitzy fanfare, no ostentatious displays, no verbose introductions. I'm not saying we shouldn't communicate in an engaging manner, but the difference is in our motive. There's a difference between trying to express yourself and wanting to impress others. The question should always be asked, are we trying to get the message heard, or do we want the messenger seen? D.L. Moody was the Billy Graham of his day, a man used by God in mighty and marvelous ways. Yet Moody was uneducated, his voice was high-pitched, even nasally. He even had an unattractive appearance. 
Once a reporter was sent out to analyze Mr. Moody's success, he later wrote back and said, I can see nothing whatsoever in Moody to account for his marvelous work. And that is exactly the reason God puts his spiritual treasure in paper sacks. So that every onlooker will rest assured that the power is of God and not of us. Verse 8 provides us a little taste of Paul's ministry. He says, we are hard pressed on every side, yet not crushed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Merle Tenney paraphrases this. Squeezed, but not squashed. Bewildered, but not befuddled. Pursued, but not abandoned. Knocked down, but not knocked out. There were circumstances that squeezed Paul. You bet there were. There were unanswered questions that bewildered him. There were enemies who pursued him. There were attacks that literally knocked him down. Talk about a pastor having a rough job. Nobody had it tougher than Paul. Yet he never resented his trials. Never. God was faithful to show up with whatever Paul needed. You recall when Gideon defeated the Midianites. It was another example of how God uses crack pots to showcase the excellence of his power. God kept telling Gideon to send his troops home. I'm sure this kind of depressed Gideon, kind of caused him to scratch his head. He kept having to send people home. Until finally his troops were reduced to 300 men. He was outnumbered 450 to 1. God equipped each of Gideon's soldiers with a clay jar with a torch inside the jar and with a trumpet. And on cue, they were to light the torch, break the jar, and blow the trumpet. When the jars were broken, the light came streaming out. It hit the oxygen and and inflamed. And it created the illusion that the Midianites were surrounded. It caused them to panic. You know the rest of the story. We're told the sword of the Lord and of Gideon won a big victory that day. But focus on those clay jars. For like us, those jars were hard and ugly and thick. God needed to break them for the light to shine through. And the same is true for us. As long as we're hard and thick and stubborn and prideful and self-sufficient, God can't use us. It's when He breaks us of our self-sufficiency and humbles us. That's when the light comes shining through. And this was the good thing that had happened to Paul. His ministry was hard, but his brokenness had become a blessing. Mark Twain was once bound on a train for Sioux City. He didn't want his, to take his briefcase on board, so he asked a clerk if the briefcase was strong enough to withstand the rigorous treatment doled out by the baggage handlers. Well, the man He took Mark Twain's briefcase and he threw it down on the pavement. And he said, sir, this is what she'll get in Philadelphia. Then he slammed it a half dozen times up against the side of the car. Well, this is what it'll get in Chicago. Finally, he hurled the case against the wall, stomped on it vigorously till the papers came out. Well, that's what she'll get if she ever makes it to Sioux City. Well, Twain couldn't believe what he was seeing. Finally, the 
clerk handed Mark Twain his mangled briefcase and said calmly, if you're going further than Sioux City, I'd suggest you just carry it on yourself. (laughs) Well, Paul was like that briefcase. Everywhere he went to minister, he got beat up, but he never gave up. He traveled a lot further than Sioux City, and he received rougher treatment than Mark Twain's briefcase, yet God was at work in all of his difficulties. Paul says in verse 10 that he's always carrying about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body. For we who live are always delivered to death for Jesus' sake, that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So then death is working in us, but life in you. Paul's body was probably more mangled than Mark Twain's briefcase. He was literally one of the walking wounded. But the cracks in his vessel became opportunities for the light of Jesus on the inside to shine outside through him. Dr. Rachel Riemann, she tells the story of a patient she treated for severe depression. This man had lost his leg to cancer. She had him one day draw a picture of how he saw himself. He drew an ugly, cracked, worthless vase. But a transformation occurred in this young man's thinking as he began to deal with his disappointments. He soon discovered that he could be an encouragement to other cancer patients. His life took on a new meaning. One day, Dr. Riemann, she showed her patient his previous drawing of the cracked, ugly vase. The fellow, he took out a silver crayon. And he started drawing vivid, colorful streamers flowing out of the cracks in the vase. He explained to Dr. Riemann his addition. He said, where it's broken, there is now where the light comes through. Where it's broken, this is now where the light comes through. And Paul is making the same statement. It's where he's been broken It's where he's dying. It's where he's hurting. That's where the light shines through. Jesus is revealed through our scars. And this is God's desire for every Christian. We assume God is praised by the trophies and by the crowns that we accumulate. But it is our weaknesses that showcase his grace. It is our wounds that let his light shine through. Paul is no longer discouraged by his difficulties. He now sees them as opportunities to reveal the light of Christ. Chuck Colson climbed the rungs of political power, stepping on anybody and everybody on his way up. A brilliant lawyer, a shrewd politician, even a fierce political operative. He became a special assistant to President Nixon. He ended up becoming Nixon's hatchet man. And it was doing the president's dirty work during the Watergate scandal that put Colson behind bars. When facing trial, Colson was given a copy of C.S. Lewis's book, Mere Christianity. After reading it, Colson gave his life to Jesus. He was instantly transformed. The critics said, oh, it's just a ploy to get get the judge to reduce his sentence. But after his stint in prison, God continued to shine his light through Colson's life. God put it on his heart to start a prison ministry. Prison Fellowship became one of the most successful Christian ministries of its type. 
Later, Chuck Colson, he made an interesting comment. The great paradox of my life is that every time I walk into a prison and see the faces of men or women who have been transformed by the power of the living God, I realize that the thing God has chosen to use in my life is none of the successes, achievements, degrees, awards, honors, or cases I won before the Supreme Court. That's not what God's using in my life. What God is using in my life to touch the lives of literally thousands of other people is the fact that I was a convict and went to prison. That was my great defeat. The only thing in my life I didn't succeed in. How ironic. The one defeat on Chuck Colson's resume was the one aspect that God used to touch the lives of others. See, this is what Paul discovered. That it really is through the cracks in our lives that the light of Jesus shines the brightest. Well, Paul summarizes his enduring faith in verse 13. And since we have the same spirit of faith, according to what is written, I believed and therefore I spoke. And here Paul quotes King David in Psalm 116. For there David declares, I am greatly afflicted. And yet he still spoke. Paul is saying, I'm from a long line of faith that suffers yet still speaks. He says, we also believe and therefore speak. Real faith can't be silent. Faith is born in the heart, but eventually it bubbles up and it speaks out the truth. And here's the truth that Paul's faith declares. Knowing that he who raised up the Lord Jesus will also raise us up with Jesus and will present us with you. Paul had given his body to the Lord as a living sacrifice and ministry had taken its toll. It had beat him up pretty good. But Paul wasn't worried about his physical condition. He wasn't worried about his present welfare. He knew that despite his current aches and pains, one day his body would be resurrected, immortal. Remember that. When life gets tough, when ministry gets rough, here is a promise you can take to the bank. The Christian has a reward on the other side. That nothing we give up for Jesus in this life won't be repaid a hundredfold in the next. Paul says, For all things are for your sakes, that grace, having spread through the many, may cause thanksgiving to abound to the glory of God. As troublesome as it was, Paul's ministry had spread grace to thousands. That meant many more people had been added to the ranks of the grateful because of Paul. And that meant more praise, more thanks, more glory would go to God. Paul's ministry had caused thanksgiving to abound to the glory of God. And that's what helped Paul take the punches. All his suffering was a small price to pay to bring God more glory. This is the heart of every minister. Christian ministry might be hard, but it is always worth it.